Ed, how are you doing? Uh, proprietor. <laughs> that, that makes it sound very grand, doesn't it? Yes, I'm, I'm pretty good, thank you. So, how much did you enjoy the Carling Cup final, wherein we won our first trophy of the season? I did, it's great. Um, silverware, silverware, isn't it? Um, it was it was an okay game. It, you know, it wasn't a stunning game, but great, great to win. Uh, we've got one more trophy than anyone else around at the moment. You know, the the lads are all delighted, and and hopefully it'll uh, spur them on to kick on to bigger and better things, um, and it'll be the kind of catalyst for the confidence uh, in the team going forward. Yeah, I've never ever in my life cared about the League Cup final before, um, but I did this uh, this weekend. I I just felt like it was really important. You say silverware, silverware and for sure I, I agree but there was just something about how much that um, semi-final had galvanised the squad and how much improved we'd been since that game uh, with one exception uh, the game against Everton and just I don't know it just felt like it was really important well I mean, we, we've spoken a little bit before about how the Carling Cup's taken on as you say more importance this season and partly it's because the, the team's just not as good as it has been in the past we've lost a lot more games this season than than in uh, recent years and uh, as a result our kind of progression to a fourth Premier League title in a row is in doubt uh, we're clearly going to face some tougher competition in the Champions League assuming we get past Milan next week so the Carling Cup is was our best shot at silverware this season so we've got it so it was really important from that perspective and and you're right you're right about the confidence thing the the side was really galvanised after uh, the semi-final win. There's something about that really lifted everybody. And uh, yeah, I think it was Wes Brown said it was massive. And this is uh, this is you know equally large. I, I, and I, I remember and we we spoke about it before. How remember um, Rooney's first cup win with United, the Carling Cup, um, over in Cardiff, beat Wigan, and and that seemed to you know galvanised the side then after a few barren years and I, I'm just hoping that this kicks them on they win 10 Premier League games in a row and take the take the Premier League title there's um there's something about the atmosphere there's an atmosphere building around the club and the green and gold is a huge part of that and just this this felt like a real flashpoint for that and it feels like I don't know losing would have caused a bit of air to come out of that bubble well I mean there's an argument to say that um if United lose, then the fans would be even more angry. I've heard this argument, uh, you know, a few times. Well, on United fans' sport, they've been more successful than ever, and and of course that's yeah, you know, it's pretty patronising because uh, we're we're more intelligent and more organised than perhaps some media commentators give us credit for. And I, I do think the, the green and gold thing has now taken a life of its own, and and we'll, we'll come on to the we'll come on to all of this. Um, but see later in the podcast. Um, so I don't know if, whether if we'd lost that game, whether it had actually blown that bubble at all. I mean, and clearly it gave it a massive platform for international media coverage, and and that was growing anyway. I think twenty thousand balloons sprayed all over the Wembley pitch. It couldn't not do that. And uh, I think as a result, we saw quite a lot of media coverage in the states, for example, in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, both did pieces on uh, green and gold this week. I just think there's a there's a tonal difference between that being a backdrop drop a backdrop to kind of triumph and success and and you know it's a good association for that campaign to have to be associated with winning a trophy you know because because it's it, you know there's a, there's a 
that that gives it a different edge as a campaign i think you know, it's just it's just a kind of more positive association and there's a lot of work being done obviously to maintain a positive association with the anti-glazer campaign but yeah we'll, we'll talk about that the match itself it was a really interesting match um it was a really flat period at the beginning of the second half the atmosphere at wembley during the game itself seemed dreadful i've never been to the new wembley but um it just it just felt completely flat in there. Um, Berbatov, I thought, was terrific. I'm sure you'd expect me to say that. A bit of a terrible miss right near the end of the game at 2-1 up. But he, he his layout, that, that goal that Rooney set, the second goal, Rooney's goal was just a masterpiece, I thought. The layoff from Berbatov, the cross from Valencia, the header, it was a really perfect team goal. Uh, I, I totally agree. I, I thought Bobatov had an excellent game. I thought he's uh, he's been really good in the last few weeks. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's a tough one with Bobatov, right? And uh, we had a discuss this at length uh, on the last pod. Um, yeah, it, it's really tough trying to find a place in the side for him. Um, but he had a really good game. Uh, so did Valencia. So did Park. Uh, full of energy, full of direct running. Made loads of space for other people. Used the ball really intelligently. I thought Fletcher was immense again. Um, after sort of first 15 minutes after the storm of you know, Aston Villa I sort of Fletcher really took control of the midfield and there was there was a, a time when um, Villa threatened to, to have dominance in that area Not, you know clearly midfield is is the factor that wins almost all games and Petrov and Milner were both very bright in there, moving, they move ahead of the ball very well, and they're not a traditional sort of attacking and a defensive midfield duo at all. But uh, I thought Fletcher really stamped his authority, laid the platform for Valencia, Berbatov, Rooney and Park, the, the front four, to really go on and play well. Yeah, Carrick had a bit of a shocker, I thought, actually. I don't think he had a good game at all. I'm a big Michael Carrick fan, but it wasn't his day, I didn't think. No, no. I mean, he's had better games. I don't think anyone really had a shocker. Maybe maybe a shocker's a little bit strong, but he, he just didn't look like he was playing well. I don't think he was helped by the pitch, mind you. I mean, obviously, Carrick's a Rolls-Royce of a player when he gets the ball. And um, it, was, it was, yeah, obviously, a spongy pitch, cutting up a lot. And, um, uh, you know, the, the obvious way to play on that would have been direct. Of course, United didn't do that. And they used the wings well. Um, I was actually surprised, I was a bit surprised that Villa didn't move from back to front a lot quicker because obviously that's their strength um, in the forward areas, have lots of pace and a bunch of big men as well when they wanted to throw them on at the end of the at the end of the game there and, and on that pitch that might have been a way to play but they didn't really do it and I suppose that's credit to the manager. Um, there you go, I, I thought good performance from United in the end. Villa, it was an interesting performance from the Villa actually, I think they they were hurt so much by that Michael Owen goal and their kind of inexperience at the top level of winning trophies showed through there because, you know, United faced real adversity being 1-0 down within four minutes, really energised the Villa crowd, but, you know, kind of have all the experience in the world at digging in and finding a way back into that game. Um, Red Ranta posted on Twitter when he was watching uh, the Carling Cup over again he just said Owen's positioning and instincts were immaculate in that first goal and, and he's right it was um, it was interesting watching Michael Owen because there was a couple of times where you know I just kind of felt a bit sad watching him just because he was kind of in a position to lead a counter-attack and he's just lost so much pace from how fast he used to be and he looks sort of somewhat pedestrian when he's running with the ball he gives you something that almost no other striker in the world gives you in terms of just nous and being in the right place at the right time and having a cool head with the finish. 
Oh, you totally, t- totally, and that, that's what he's all about. The, the problem is he's just lost that edge, and and Ferguson knows it, right? And that's why he doesn't start very often. And it, and it's very difficult to start with him a, a lot because what damage is he, is he going to cause? He doesn't cause any damage, you know, with the ball at his feet. I know, I know Ferguson talked last week about um, his link-up play improving. Well, yeah, it's improved from dreadful to not much better than that. He he uh, he's he's not a player who's going to drop deep and create. Uh, he's not a target man. So all he's really got now that he doesn't have the pace is that knowledge of you know where to be at the right time and and the finish and those two things are very valuable but at the very very highest level it's not quite enough maybe that's not what we need him for no absolutely and I'll you know it was a real shame to see him see him coming off injured even though that meant that Rooney could uh, come on and light up the place he certainly did that uh, world-class headed sorry to use the cliche in in every sense uh, just a brilliant goal and fitting uh, fitting goal to win the trophy and yeah just a uh, one more random twitter quote about the match man united youth saying captain ever getting to lift a trophy for us perhaps his favorite part of that day and yeah paddy ever is a red is a red is a red paddy ever is a red he hates the glazers Ah, brilliant quote, wasn't it, this week? Let me just pull up, pull up the exact wording and I'll do it with an accent because it only seems appropriate. They are the original colours of Manchester United and the fans wear them because they love this club. They have their reasons for doing it and we don't think that they are crazy. They'd like things to change. We know you would too, Paddy. You just know that he was wearing green and gold underpants, right? <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, but it was fantastic to see him lift the trophy. And Ferguson absolutely flipping out with joy. I don't he know. Like... He always does. I mean, 30, 32 or 34, depending on whether you count the intercontinental cups and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, 30-odd trophies with United. Loves it. Yeah, every single one of them as you know, much as the last. He, he was having a good old sing-song. It was a very, he wore a very pointedly all red scarf during that uh, celebration. Just completely block-solid red, that scarf. Well, um, and uh, I'm afraid, but that does provide a good segue, doesn't it? He, he is a knight, and that was red. Oh, Ed, you're so good at that. We are going to have to talk about that, and and uh, I know for a couple of weeks we've tried to avoid it because it's repetition, and how much can we talk about the must and the, the glazers and the death and, and so on, but things have taken a turn, a massive turn in the past week. Um, as as we speak, uh, Manchester United Supporters Club membership is more than 110,000. It's grown in the last three days by more than 50,000. There's a, there's a huge internet campaign on Twitter and Facebook and social networking groups and the forums and to to sign people up and obviously it's free now and you can go to joinmust.org and sign up and uh, must have uh, brought in Blue State Digital who are the uh, the marketing agency behind a lot of the Obama's social media campaign during the uh, the presidential election and uh, the idea I guess is to build this massive groundswell of support and phase two will be to try and monetize it and 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 here are the red knights who met formally last week and uh, we, I, we believe there are nine of them all extremely wealthy individuals prepared to put their own money on the table and try and make a bid i mean when you say extremely wealthy individuals let's put this in perspective they're not abramovich wealthy no. they're not they're not you know the owners of manchester city wealthy these are people who are very well off but also more importantly perhaps very well connected within the city 
Right, and and their fans, and uh, and that's one of the things that's appealed so much. So um, probably the the most wealthy of them all is Paul Marshall from Marshall Waste. He's a, a pretty well known derivative trader if you're in that world, and his wealth's at two hundred something million. So that that gives it some kind of perspective. This is not sovereign wealth that you know from oil that could buy any player on the planet. Um, and and basically the plan as it's formulated is to have something like 20 to 40 high net worth individuals putting in 10 to 15 million pounds each something like that to get a base bid and there will need to be other money on top so um, one of the pieces I read this week uh, said that they're looking for an anchor bidder so that will be someone extremely wealthy that is prepared to put in something like 400 to 500 million the rest of them will put in maybe up to a billion uh, they'll be looking for fans and fans groups like must put in several tens of millions you know who knows exactly what it will be and there might have to be some borrowing too i mean the complexities of how the debt structure at the moment means that uh, there probably will have to be at least a couple of hundred million of of debt on the club after this if if it if it happens at all of course the glazers this week said they they're not prepared to sell yeah, they also said they weren't prepared to sell Cristiano Ronaldo, or someone said that not that long ago. Yes, yeah, so well, well, it's negotiation 101, isn't it? Don't don't admit that something's for sale um, yeah. unless you want the price to start dropping. So uh, they, they're trying to make sure there's a scarcity, and uh, clearly there is scarcity because there's only one Manchester United. But um, but yeah, of course, of course, it's for for sale. It just depends on the price. You okay? You know a bit about football and you know a bit about business and economics and all that sort of thing ed i think it's fair to say um what do you think the chances of this particular group getting together a bid which ends up being uh the the you know ends up being successful and owning manchester united are uh, i i think it's a pretty long shot right at the moment and it's a long shot for two reasons one the the price of manchester united has gone up significantly over the last five years so the glazers bought it at uh, about 790 million the turnover is, is is significantly more that means the multiplier is higher so you know, take a multiplier of you know, five times turnover let's say would would give us a bid price of 1.4 billion it might be more than that that's needed some analysts had said 1.2 some have said 1.6 so we're, we're talking a lot of money that, that means it's a long shot second second point is there's no desperate need for the glazers to sell the bonds has given them seven years worth the grace that Manchester United makes plenty of money. It's not about to go bust. This is not a Portsmouth scenario yet. And uh, they can hang on for a while. I mean, they're going to hang on, spend an awful lot of money, draw an awful lot out to pay off their pick loans, uh, invest not very much in the playing squad over that seven years, for sure. Uh, the, the economics of it just don't add up, no matter what David Gill says. And uh, they'll use it as a cash cow. They could keep doing that, and it doesn't matter how much money's put on the table. If they want to do it, they don't have to sell. So so it makes it a long shot. The, the other issue is that, uh, and, and we shouldn't forget this, uh, uh, you know, amid the euphoria of growing must membership um, and the potential for ousting the Glazers with a bid, the people putting their money in will want a return. Now, whether that's institutional investors because they have to go to the city to borrow some money or whether it's you know, individuals cash on the table, these people will want a return on their money. So this is not a case of uh, 20 to 40 red knights putting up cash and then just handing it over to the fans. I'm afraid uh, the economics of that just don't stack up. But it, what it could be is that they buy a certain percentage and allow within the constitution of whatever new entity it is that 
ends up owning Manchester United for the fans to take a stake. And Paul Marshall this week talked about the fans taking a 25.1% stake, which would give it a blocking stake, which means the company couldn't be floated and couldn't be sold on without the fans saying yes to it. Oh, that'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it's the best that you could hope for, really, isn't it? Given given the, the sort of dire situation at the moment. I've got a question about, just from a kind of cold, hard fact perspective, would you say that the Glazers will reap more personal wealth by holding on to the club for seven years, given all the uncertainty that that brings, especially if success on the pitch is affected by their lack of investment in the club? Are they likely to personally benefit from that more than they would from selling it now or soon? Well, it depends on uh, what premium they'll get on the sale. So right. if they get a hundred million pound premium on the sale then you, know, you look at how much you know united's profit was 91 million obviously all wiped out by debt this year basically ongoing united's profit looks like it's going to keep increasing i mean they are monetizing the brand very well in that kind of parlance that's over the next seven years seven to eight hundred million pounds worth of profit much of that will go out the window just to pay out down debt they'll pay down their pick debt but with you know through that period they're going to, they're going to be taking dividends and loans and other cash and I'm sure they pay themselves the salary and, and all of that kind of stuff so yeah that'll provide them with a lot of wealth they could just sell up they could just sell up take uh, take their 100 million pound profit I'm sure they're looking for more um, they might be looking for 500 million pound profit which uh, as offensive as that is might be worth it just to get them out if if the the bidders can come up with that kind of cash yeah because you know that uh, we we don't need to harp on about this because we really have talked about it a lot but you are crazy if you, well you're not crazy you're ill informed if you don't think that the current model of how Manchester United will be run as a business under the Glazers is going to negatively affect success on the pitch. It's it's really simple, and this isn't my opinion. These are the numbers that came out of the prospectus. Uh, they, they are going to take about 79% in every pound that Manchester United fans put into the club over the next seven years. Uh, the best estimate says that's about £565 million over the next seven years. Now, that's money that could be used to reduce ticket prices, or invest in the transfer market. So if you're happy with paying more at the gate and uh, United not buying the best players, then, uh, yeah, the Glazers are the people for you. Yes. So on to um, more football-related matters and less business talk, because I really... It's very upsetting and depressing whenever we talk about these things, even if there is a bit of potential light at the end of the tunnel at the moment. Let's talk about uh, Michael Carrick and Wayne Rooney and uh, Wesley Brown and a bunch of other players. And uh, England's game yesterday evening, you were at the match. Yep, yep, made trip to Wembley. Um, you, um, I think it's fair to say you made the wrong trip to Wembley since I last spoke to you. <laughs> right. Well, I, this is... Uh... It, it, it was frustrating in a way. I mean, it, it's it's not the first time I've been to Wembley, uh, obviously. It's, uh, and this is, a, what, what is this, the second England game I've been to at the new Wembley. Uh, I've been to a couple at the old Wembley, and I, I went to England versus South Africa at, um, at Old Trafford many years ago. So I'm, I'm not a big follower of England, but thought it would be fun. Um, so, uh, yeah, made, made the trip to go and do it. And it was pretty frustrating, A, because the quality of the game was pretty awful. B, because I sat with a whole bunch of people who just moaned on about United players all game. They're moaning about Wes Brown. They were moaning about Rooney. One one guy sat next to me actually said, 
Oh, is this the best we've got? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> moaning about Carrick when he came on. And I thought, actually, all three of them had... I mean, Rooney had a slow start, uh, but as the game went on, got more and more involved when they actually, you know, the rest of the players actually worked out they could give him the ball. And especially when uh, Gerard went off and the shape got a bit better. Um, and he, you could just tell Rooney's frustration. He's a cut above everyone else. Um, and he he definitely gets frustrated that... Um, it doesn't work in quite the same you know, smooth fashion as it does with United. Um, I thought Wes Brown. <laughs> I love um, that. I love. I love your red spec, red tinted spectacles, Ed. I, I, as if Rooney is never. It's not like Rooney ever gets frustrated with how United players perform. Witness Nanny the other week. Oh no! Well, no, totally. But 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 the entire side wasn't functioning last night in the first forty-five. Um, yeah. And I, Brown, I thought you know got better as the game went on. He was, he was solid defensively. His distribution was poor to start with, as was everyone else's, and he got better. Um, it made a great block right at the end. And and I thought Carrick changed the game. I mean, he he uh, got on the ball and he started moving the ball, which is. Uh, not what happened in the first half. So anyway, so that is my experience of England last night. I, I won't be making it a regular habit, but uh, yeah, there, you, there you go. And, and Wembley is a, is a, is a on, on occasions like that. Uh, I've been to to better games at Wembley, but um, occasions like that, it, it's it's so large and there's just no atmosphere. And the Egyptians did their best; they had about five thousand people there, but uh, the rest of it just really flat. Because it's World Cup year, and um, I, I, I was guesstimating today, I think about nine United players will be there if you count Zoran Tosic, because he, he may or may not be, he'll probably be in the Serbian squad, so eight or nine. Um, and about nine United players played last night, not all of the, the same, but you know, International Week, and, and quite a few of them were warming up for the World Cup or warming up for the European qualifiers uh, next. Yeah. Uh, who who were the nine then last night? So the three that played with England, uh, obviously Rooney, Carrick and Brown. Darren Fletcher, captain of Scotland. Uh, Park Ji Sung was with South Korea. They beat um, Ivory Coast at Loftus Road, I believe. Pretty, pretty good result. Good, good result. Very good result. Very odd venue. Um, <laughs> that's Pat- where it's where all the big international friendlies take place, isn't it? Apparently so. Yeah. Um, Patrice Evra played for France. They lost to Spain at uh, Stade de France. Um, Spain. I, I don't know whether you've seen any of that. It looked awesome again. Uh, they're just head and shoulders above everyone else at the moment. Um, yeah. When I when I got to work this uh, this morning, um, I I said to my boss, "Well, Rooney got through unscathed." Uh, he said, yeah, but Spain are crapping themselves. <laughs> yeah. It was dreadful. Um, who else? Darren Gibson played for the Republic. Obviously, they didn't qualify, but um, they lost to Brazil. Not a surprise. At the Emirates, yeah, um, Brazil uh, seems to make that their second home. Obviously, it's uh, financially uh, worthwhile for them. Corey Evans uh, played for Northern Ireland in their 1-0 defeat um, to Albania and uh, Reports say he had a very good game after he came on as substitute. Uh, Dimitar Berbatov played uh, in their 2 0 defeat to Poland, uh, in which uh, Thomas Kuzak also played. So, yeah, th- th- there's nine, nine United players going to the World Cup. Um, I, I, I certainly, as somebody who would, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing England do well in the World Cup. I would like to see uh, Carrick, Rooney, and Brown starting every game for England. Um, yeah, but, I, I, I mean, I guess uh, Brown's position depends on what happens with Glenn Johnson. Um, yeah, I, that's bizarre to me. I mean, 
it really is bizarre to me unless given given as well that, that England do have attacking options down the right hand side like why you would pick Glenn Johnson ahead of Wesley Brown is bizarre because Wesley gives you so much more defensively yeah and I guess it depends who we're playing and who he has on the right wing so I mean there's a few factors but yep Brown's position touch and go uh, Carrick won't start obviously he's going to be starting with uh, Lampard and Barry in the centre and Gerard left and it, it really didn't work at all yesterday um Gerard's just not disciplined enough to play anywhere other than where Stevie Me wants to play but you know there you go that's uh, that's Gerard um and and Rooney obviously a definite starter for for England and it's just a matter of who he plays with and what sort of system they play and would you say that uh Wayne Rooney will be a definite starter away to Wolverhampton Wanderers this weekend Ed well it's an interesting one and obviously he got the rest against Villa well at least you know 55 minutes of it or, or whatever it was um so yeah yeah he will probably play against Wolves this weekend uh, yeah, he he played what eighty eighty something minutes last night. We'll we'll see. I guess they'll they'll take a call. They'll see how fresh he is, and and uh, if he feels a bit tired, then they might change things around. But there aren't an awful lot of options. There's uh, Berbatov um, who played. Um, oh, and um, Mami Biram Diouf, who's the other one I forgot, who uh, who played for Senegal. I believe they lost to Greece last night. I don't spend all my time trawling bizarre results of world football, but you know, <laughs> a, a fair, fair amount of it. Just as much as you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. So, um, who knows? Um, maybe, maybe he'll get a shot. I mean, it is Wolves away. We we ought to be able to win that, even with a few players missing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's always difficult, isn't it? Um, you never quite know um, how dangerous it is to rest players, because... Uh, it does sometimes go horribly, horribly wrong when you try and rest players against. Mm, but they've got that big game against Milan on Wednesday night, and well, absolutely. And I, I think you know, if I was managing the Manchester United squad, I would do everything I could to give some players a rest this weekend. Um, Interesting news from Milan. Of course, Pato is uh, got a thigh injury at the moment. He'll definitely miss a weekend game, and they're hoping to have him back for the the uh, the Champions League tie. Uh, was a big fuss about Pato. He obviously looks quite a tidy player. Barely scores any goals, but um, who knows? I, I don't know. There's a lot of talk about £40 million bids coming in from Chelsea. He doesn't quite uh, look like that kind of quality player to me, but um, maybe I don't watch enough Italian football. I certainly know that I don't watch enough Italian football because I don't watch any Italian football. Um, that's Yeah, that's one national league they can keep, frankly. Uh, I've added a couple of extra functionality pieces to Rant, very much in beta mode, so uh, apologies for any bugs, uh, but uh, if you go on to Rant this week and you'll see a, a strange black bar at the top. This is your route into uh, groups and messaging and a Facebook-style activity wall. Um, you can add your avatar or gravatar. Um, I, I do encourage you to go and get a gravatar. They are uh, very good. They work all around the internet. Um, you can add pictures. Uh, you, there are mini forums associated with all the groups, and you can get involved and discuss whatever points. Now, very much in beta, so do let me know if there are any bugs and play around with it. And once I'm a bit happier, I'll uh, launch it with a few more friendly buttons so people can access it and create things more easily and and all of that. I just um, posted an activity saying I don't know what a gravitar is. So uh, anyone that wants to friend me up on... Uh... On the thing, if you can work out how to do it, I'm just Paul. Ed, what, what are you on the... I'm Ed at Admin. 
Yeah, so Ed, Ed. admin. I think I might be Paul at Paul. So you can give yourself a nickname as well as your uh, login, basically. Okay. Yeah. So I'm 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 Paul at Paul. Sounds like I'm talking to myself. Um, talking of uh, social networking, Twitter.com/slash/UnitedRant and Twitter.com/slash/UTDRantCast. Uh, that's where you can find me and Ed on Twitter in between now and the next episode. If you're desperate to hear our opinions um, about football, um, I, and and I, I am, you know, won't to opine about all sorts of things on there. I, I have noticed you do like to opine. Um, the the I have to say, since starting uh, just last week, the Rantcast address on Twitter, UTD Rantcast. I don't know if I've mentioned that. There's there's an awful lot of Manchester United related activity on Twitter, isn't there? Yeah, and it's it's a, a hell of a a lot of it's associated with the green and gold campaign, very much a social media phenomenon. Uh, of course, it appears to have been linked up with the uh, anti glazer campaign in Tampa Bay at the moment. So, uh, hash bucks, hash Tampa Bay, uh, hash glazer, hash l u h g. Uh, yeah, search for any of those, and you'll you'll find it all going on. All right, and breaking news um, uh, from the National. Andrew Cole apparently has uh, written that he might buy a green and gold scarf. I don't know whether that's true or not. That's breaking news as we speak. So uh, good on Andy Cole, who's who has this week uh, held, uh, admitted that he's held a 15-year vendetta against Teddy Sheringham because on his <laughs> England debut, Sheringham refused to shake his hand. Is that what happened? Because I've always wanted to know why they hated each other. I, I always, I always just assumed that Sheringham had uh, like shagged Andy Cole's wife or something. But no, no, he didn't shake his hand as uh, Andy Cole came on as a 71st minute sub. That's really, really, really petulant, isn't it? Uh, one thing that I, I think we really need to make happen in some ways for uh, Eric to arrive at um, Old Trafford wearing a green and gold scarf. That, that, that'll that uh, that'll make my year. That will. You I, never I, know. It may well happen. I've started watching videos of him on YouTube again, Ed. It's uh, it's an issue I've got to deal with in some way. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave you to it. Go off and enjoy your um, illicit videos on the internet. We all know what you mean, really. And uh, we'll see you next Thursday. All right. See you next Thursday, everyone.